Good morning, Lakeshore. We're so glad that you're here with us today. We want to welcome you at our Smyrna campus. We're glad you're with us. Those that are connecting with us online, thank you so much for connecting with us today. Uh, we are happy to be able to get the message out through uh, social media, through the internet, uh, through our website, to uh, all over the world, really. And we're so grateful uh, that you've connected with us there. We are in a series called God Revealed. I love that clip. A lot of you probably have not seen that clip. It's from a movie called Hail Caesar that didn't do well at the box office at all. But the clip really ties in with our series, with what we're talking about. In this series, we're looking at the different attributes of God as God has revealed himself to be. Now, in that clip, there's a motion picture company that is making a movie about the Christ, about Jesus. And they're trying to meet with these religious leaders to, to make sure nobody gets offended by how they present Christ in the movie. And they all have their opinions about the characteristics or the nature of God. You heard, you heard one of them say he's an angry God, and then the other one says, no, he's not. He's a loving God. And he says, what, did he get over it, you know? So we've been looking at the different attributes of the nature of God. And we can't leave it up to the movies to define God for us. We can't leave it up to our own individual tastes or opinions or feelings about God. God didn't leave that option open for us. Instead, what God did is he revealed himself to us. And he did that in several different ways. And, and our series is just simply looking at what God has revealed about himself. One day a teacher was talking to her first grade class about whales, and a little girl asked the question, uh, Teacher, can a whale swallow a person? And the teacher said, uh, Actually, no. Even though whales are much bigger than human beings, they have a... Uh, uh, a filter on their throat that filters out krill and plankton, and a human being could not uh, fit through that opening that a whale has. So whales cannot swallow people. And she said, but my Sunday school teacher, Miss Thurston, said that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. And, and the teacher got red in the face and said, uh, there's no way. Uh, whales cannot swallow people. And the little girl said, well... When I get to heaven, I'll just ask Jonah if he was really swallowed by a whale. <laughs> and the teacher said, well, what if Jonah didn't make it to heaven? She said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> so far in our series, we have examined God's holiness, his power, and his wisdom. Today, we examine God's wrath. Aren't you glad you came today? Aren't you excited about hearing more about the wrath of God? See, here's the problem in the church today. Something happened that was a good thing. For many years, there was a lot of preaching and teaching and pulpit pounding about the wrath of God. And, and that was not something that a lot of people were, after a while, were happy that that was just all they ever heard all the time. And people began to turn away from the church. Now, years ago, there was an event that happened in America called the Great Awakening, and it was really spurred by, really launched by a sermon that was preached by famous preacher Jonathan Edwards, and the sermon title was, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
And that created a revival. People were being uh, challenged to come back to God and repent. And it led to a great revival in our country. But over the years, the, the emphasis on the wrath of God began to lose its effectiveness. And what began to happen, what began to happen is that more and more preachers began to emphasize the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. Now, that was a good thing. It was a needed thing. But we human beings, given enough time and opportunity, what can we do? Mess it up, right? And here's what happened. In reaction to all the preaching on, about the wrath of God, uh, there was an overreaction like we often do. The pendulum swung so far to the other side that now almost, any, uh, almost everybody only hears in most churches today about love and grace and forgiveness as attributes of God. And we ought to hear about those things. But here's the problem. The wrath of God is also revealed in Scripture. It's there, and it's clearly expressed from beginning in Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation. There is clear articulation of the fact that the, there is the wrath of God. He has exercised that wrath in the past, and he has declared to us that it will be exercised again in the future. So to leave this out would be to, have you heard the term cherry pick? It's the idea of you only pick and choose the things that you like. Well, I'm a pastor teacher, and this is a church where we don't cherry pick what the Bible says. We take the whole thing. And the whole thing includes the clear teaching about the wrath of God. So today we examine God's wrath. And sometimes the question, you know, what we tend to do is go by our feelings. So, so we feel like our God that we know would never, ever send anybody to hell. Haven't you heard that? The God I know wouldn't send anybody to hell. And so we just kind of write that off. And if you really just accept that on the surface, then you have to skip over a lot of verses in the Bible. You have to completely eliminate large portions of Scripture in order to take that view. But you also need to understand that the God who has that wrath is the same God who has the love that he has shown and displayed. And the same God who promises to exercise that wrath also promises to exercise grace and mercy and forgiveness to those who would receive it. So we have to balance those two things because Scripture presents and balances those two things about the characteristics, the attributes of God. So let's look at this subject by beginning with how God has revealed himself. It would be unfair of God to exercise wrath against anyone if he has not revealed himself to them and his will to them for their lives. Wouldn't that be unfair? To be punished when you didn't even know? You didn't even have the opportunity to, to get ready and prepare? Have you ever been wrongfully accused and punished when you didn't do the wrong thing? I think everybody has had some of that, right? We've all at least felt like we were innocent sometimes, but we got punished anyway. My two brothers always blamed it on me growing up, always. But I always blamed it on them. And sometimes they got punished unjustly, Sometimes, but my parents were good. If one of us got a spanking, we all got a spanking, especially if nobody confessed, right? They just spank us all just to cover all their bases. 
But it was unfair in our eyes to get punished for something we felt like we didn't do. And so wouldn't it be in, in the eyes of man, thinking about God being a loving and just God, it would be unfair for God to exercise wrath against those that he had not given information to, revelation to, so they knew what to do, how to respond, so they wouldn't have to be the objects of his wrath. Well, in Romans 1, verse 18, it says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Okay? So is there a wrath of God that's being expressed? Yes. Who's it being expressed toward? All the godlessness and wickedness of people that suppress the truth with their wickedness. He says, here's why that's fair. Verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So here's the case for God exercising wrath in a fair way. These people are without excuse, it says in the very next verse. Listen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For people to reject God, for people to live in rebellion against God, they do so at their own peril because they don't have the excuse that God did not even let them know that he existed and that he's God. Well, how did God let people know that? It says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities and his eternal power and his divine nature have all been clearly seen. Already in this series, we talked about God revealing his holiness and revealing himself to us. And one way he's done that is in creation itself. If human beings will honestly look at the created order of things, it shouts out intelligent design. There is no other way to look at it. And more and more scientists, like we said earlier in this series, are coming to that conclusion, even though they may not necessarily believe in God, and even though they may not, they may not necessarily accept the biblical account, they are beginning to accept that the more we know about the intricacies of creation, the more it points to there has to be intelligent design behind it. There's no other way to explain it. You can't have enough time ever for all of this to just happen by chance with the intricate details we now know about the created order of things. No matter what age you put on the earth, it doesn't allow enough time for all of that to just happen by chance. So God is saying in his word, I've given you enough evidence to believe in me. So if you don't, if you choose not to, you are without excuse anymore. There's plenty of evidence to support the fact that I exist as God. So these people that say, well, I, I just need proof. Well, God is saying, I've given you evidence. Now, he, it's not just creation, by the way. Remember, he's given us a lot of other evidence, even after the creation, of who he is and what his will is for man. In Hebrews 1, beginning that letter, verse 1, here's what it says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times and in various ways. So, all right, right there is another evidence God gave. He spoke through the prophets throughout the history of man. He chose people that, 
that would be his prophets. And then he spoke his message through those prophets to the people to hear. So they would have God's will revealed to them. So God didn't just speak in creation. He also spoke through human beings that he called to be his messengers, his prophets, to reveal himself to us. Here's what it says. And he, he went further than that. Verse 2, but in these last days, the last age of the earth, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. God was so intent on revealing himself to us and removing all excuses that he himself came down in the flesh so that we could know him, so that we can know his character, his nature. We can know who he is. We can know his will for his creation. He has gone to every extreme he could go to to reveal himself to us. That's why he can honestly say, if you don't believe in me now, you are without excuse. You see, when he came in the flesh, they said of Jesus, no man can do what he did except that God be in him. Look at the miracles and the wonders and the signs that Jesus did to show that he was God. Healing the sick causing the blind to see, the lame to walk, all those things that he did. Power over the storm. He calmed the storm. Power over nature. He raised others from the dead, and he himself raised from the dead. How much more evidence could God possibly give? You see, we are without excuse for not believing in God. And that's laying the foundation for why God is just in exercising his wrath against those who choose not to believe, who choose not to accept the evidence and the testimony and come to him with the offer that he's made. Jesus told a lot of parables. Parables are stories told to make a point, to teach a lesson. And Jesus told the parable, we, uh, we know it, mostly as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that story? Uh, Lazarus is a beggar who's at the gate of the rich man. And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, the rich man passes by, does nothing to help Lazarus, even though he's crying out for help. They die in the story. And it says Lazarus goes to Abraham's side and he's being cared for there loved and cared for and provided for. The rich man, however, ends up suffering and burning in a place of torment. Now, the rich man realizes he's made a terrible mistake, that he didn't accept God's plan and God's will. He didn't use his opportunities that God gave him the way he should have. So he says, Please let Lazarus come over here, dip his finger in the water, and just cool down my tongue. And Abraham says to the rich man, there's a gulf between the two. He can't cross over. He can't come to you. So the rich man comes up with another idea. I've got five brothers still alive. Send Lazarus back to them to warn them not to make the same mistake that I've made. 
And here's the answer that, that Abraham gives him. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent, he says to Abraham. He's convinced. If Lazarus raised from the dead, went back and warned his brothers, they would repent. Here's what he said. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Did you catch what he's saying there? Some people just aren't going to believe. Even with all the evidence that God has provided. Has someone risen from the dead to tell us about God and God's will and God's plan and God's power? Absolutely. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He said, even if someone rises from the dead, some people are not going to believe. You see, God's done all he can to give us all the evidence we need to believe. So we have a choice to make with what we do with all that evidence. I said, well, I don't believe he rose, rose from the dead. Well, the evidence is there. If you will be honest and look at it, the evidence is there. I don't believe all those stories in the Bible, the great miracle. I don't believe the miracle. The evidence is there. It's up to you what you do with the evidence. You can choose not to believe. But what, what the Scripture is setting up here is why it's fair for God to exercise his wrath for those who choose not to believe because God has provided every evidence he can for them to believe so they are without excuse in the eyes of a righteous God so the Bible says God has revealed himself he's given us evidence now we could go on and on with evidences there are a lot more evidence fulfilled prophecies uh, the scriptural evidence we talked about last week all the uh, manuscripts we have to examine and look at and know that we have it accurately preserved for us if you missed it you can go back and listen to that one the evidences are overwhelming for anyone who's an honest seeker of the truth but some people just make up their minds they're not going to accept that evidence or that testimony. And God's wrath is being exercised against those who choose to reject all the evidence. That's fair. God is a fair and righteous judge. He would not condemn anyone without giving them the opportunity and the evidence they need to make their decision. So let's look at the second thing revealed today that we want to examine about God's wrath, and that is God will punish, then, deliberate sin. God will punish deliberate sin. There are a lot of passages I could have gone to for this. One is in Hebrews 10. I want to look at this one. Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 26. You have to understand that the book of Hebrews is written to Christians those who had already converted to Christianity, who are already followers of the teachings of Jesus Christ. And here's what he says to us, okay? If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, look at this next phrase, no sacrifice for sins is left. You have to understand the importance of that statement. He's not talking about how Christians sometimes slip and fall and make a mistake. That's not what he's talking about. God says if we repent, come back to him, he'll forgive us. He's gracious toward us. 
That's not, he's not saying you lose your salvation every time you mess up. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he is saying. If we deliberately choose to keep on living a lifestyle of sin, after we've received the knowledge of the truth that God has revealed about this, then there remains no more a sacrifice for our sins. You see what he's talking about? A deliberate choice to ignore what God's teaching says and go on living sinfully anyway. That's when there remains no more a sacrifice for our sins. Now, if there's not a sacrifice for our sins, where does that leave us? It leaves us to be the objects of God's wrath. Remember, God's wrath is exercised against sinfulness because he's a pure and holy God. There's no sin in him at all. Sin can't be in his presence. So his wrath is exercised toward those who willfully choose to go on sinning. So he says, if there's no more sacrifice for sins, in verse 27, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Where does that leave us if we don't have a sacrifice for sins? It leaves us as objects of the wrath of God, which leads us to a judgment of raging fire. That's where it leads us. That's the wrath of God. And it's exercised toward those who reject God's revelation and willfully choose to go on sinning anyway, even though God has revealed himself to us and his grace and his mercy is available. And we reject it. We choose not to accept it. That's when God's wrath is exercised. And then he gives more explanation to why God is just to do this. Look at verse 28. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony or two or three witnesses. So he's, he's saying a comparison here, okay? How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has done this, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, who has insulted the Spirit of grace? You see what you're doing when you reject Jesus? It's like you're taking the blood that he spilled for you on the cross and pouring it on the ground and stomping all over it when you choose to deliberately go on living a sinful lifestyle. See, God is right and just to exercise his wrath toward us when we treat the blood of his son like that. After he willingly gave himself for us on the cross. He says in verse 30, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What he's saying there is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you've rejected his son and the blood sacrifice that he made on the cross for you. He's not saying if you've accepted that you have anything to dread. He's saying if you've rejected that, all you have to look forward to is the judgment of the wrath of God. If you reject Christ. First Timothy chapter one, Paul is instructing Timothy about what to teach as a as a preacher, a teacher in the church. And he says in First Timothy one, beginning with verse eight, he's talking about the law and how that relates to where we are now under the new covenant. He says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly. Listen to this. He begins to give a list. He's not saying 
He's saying the law served a purpose. What the law was there to do was to expose our sinfulness. Okay? God's law still serves a purpose today. That's why we still teach the Old Testament. We're not under the law, but we still need to understand the law because the law served a purpose of revealing God's will to us, revealing what is sin in the eyes of God and what is not sin in the eyes of God. Okay, so here's what he goes on to say. The law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful. And then he gives a list, okay, under the ungodly and simple, the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So he says all of those things are what? Contrary to sound doctrine. Now that's not an all exhaustive list, but he's giving us an overview of all those things that the law reveals are sinful in the eyes of God. And he's saying, in light of that, we know that the law can serve a purpose for us today. We can look at the law and see the things that God says are wrong for us. Now, why would God reveal this list to us? For two reasons, I think. One is, he doesn't want anybody to get caught off guard, right? He doesn't want us to be able to say, I didn't know. So he revealed these things to us. Now, wouldn't a good parent do that for their children? If you really love your children and you know certain things are bad for them, wouldn't you teach them don't do those things? Because they bring bad consequences. So God loves us enough to give us the information. Now, here's another reason I think he did this. This list of sins in this passage, and there's other lists and other verses, but in this passage and in all of the other passages, here's the thing about this list. Sin is sin, regardless of which sin it is. Uh, lying is put in the same category as murder because both of them are what? Sin. We like to categorize sins, don't we? Makes us feel better about ourselves. I may have told a lie, but I haven't murdered my mom or dad, right? I've thought about it, but I haven't done it, right? We like to put them in different categories, like one is worse than the other. All sin is unrighteousness, it's unholy, and all sin separates us from God. And here's what every sin does. It makes us objects of the wrath of God. That's what sin does. It makes us objects of the wrath of God. Are you not loving your neighbor as yourself? Then you're an object of the wrath of God. Or, you, know, any of this, you can name any sin. It makes you an object of the wrath of God. Because God has revealed to us that we shouldn't keep doing this. And if we willfully choose to go on doing it, it makes us objects of the wrath of God. It doesn't mean if you've ever done it once, you can't ever be loved by God or cared for. It doesn't even mean God doesn't love you. It means you put yourself in a position of having to suffer the punishment of the wrath of God because you have sin that you've chosen to welcome into your life. And you've chosen to continue in it and reject God's offer that he makes to you. So the law serves a great purpose for us. I want to look now at another passage in Revelation 21. I use this passage a lot at funerals. Uh, 
and I do a lot of funerals. I, I haven't counted over the years how many I've done, but this passage I use a lot because it's such a beautiful picture for someone who's a Christian, who has accepted God's grace and forgiveness, who chose to repent and, and, and honor God with their lives. Here's what, what John was able to see. God allowed him to see this in Revelation 21, beginning with verse 1. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And we like to stop there. But that's not where the thought stops, is it? That's not where the revelation ends. He went on to say this, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The wrath of God will be given to those people. Now, understand that's another list that's similar to the one we looked at already. And in that list, it's the same thing, right? What we consider the bad sins, the worst sins, are in there with what we consider eh, the not-so-bad sins. They're all there. But he's talking about sins that we've willfully chosen to deliberately keep on practicing, even though we know God has called us to repent. And turn from those sins. It doesn't mean you have to suffer the wrath of God because you've ever done any of those things. It means when you've been unwilling to repent and change and come to God's plan for your life, that's when you become objects of the wrath of God. That's fair and that's just because God's done everything he can to offer you grace and mercy and forgiveness. Which leads to the last thing today and that's this. God wants everyone to repent. God wants everybody to repent. God does not want to exercise wrath against anyone. We know that clearly in Scripture. Why in the world would God send Jesus here to die on the cross if he wanted anybody to suffer in hell? He would never have done it if he was okay with people being lost for all eternity. So he went to the greatest extreme he could go to to give us all a chance that even though we should be objects of his wrath, we don't have to be any longer objects of his wrath. In 2 Peter 3, beginning with verse 8, he said this. People were beginning to already, given enough time and opportunity, what can we do? Mess it up. 2 Peter 3, this letter, 2 Peter, was written Early on in the first century, but after the church had been established and been around for a little while, this letter was written, and already Christians are beginning to mumble and complain. You said Jesus was coming back. Why isn't he back yet? Right? You said things were going to get better. We were going to be delivered. We were going to have this great place. Where is it? Aren't we like that? Aren't we like that? 
it's hard here, Jesus. Why don't you just come on? Well, he goes on to tell us why. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day, right? So it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said he was coming back. How many days is that? Two days. Now, he's not saying exactly. He's saying it's like that with God. Time is, is not like that in eternity like we experience it here. All right? But then he goes on to say, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, here's what God's doing. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. So is it God's will? Is it what he wants for anybody to be lost and burn in hell? No. He's not wanting that for anyone. But what God's will is, what he wants, is everyone to come to repentance. That's what God's will is. That's what God wants. That's why all this preaching that has now begun to dominate the church today is so imbalanced, unbalanced. It's because now all people are hearing is, it's just about the relationship. You and God just be friends, be good buddies. And, and, and God loves you just like you are. Does God love it when we deliberately go on sinning? No. God loves you just like you are if you start there, but God has no intent of leaving you there. He wants to radically change you, and it begins with repentance. Repentance is that point at which we decide, I'm not going to keep doing this anymore because I know this is not God's plan, God's will for my life. I'm sorry that Christ had to die on the cross for me because of that, and I'm going to make the change. I'm going to turn my life around and start living the way God teaches me to live my life. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it means you won't ever deliberately keep on sinning anymore. You won't choose that as your lifestyle anymore and think it's okay because you know the price God had to pay for that. And you don't want to trample under your feet the blood of the, of the covenant of, that God made through Christ. You don't want to do that anymore. So you're not deliberately going to go on sinning. And here's the warning he adds to it. He wants everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He won't make an appointment ahead of time. He won't call you up and set that day at this time, 3 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday night, I'm going to come rob your house. That's not what he's going to do. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, he asked the question, what kind of people ought you to be? Here's what he says. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. How can you put yourself in a place where you can look forward to the time Jesus comes? By not remaining anymore an object of the wrath of God. That's how. By repenting and making the choice to live the godly life God has called you to. That's how you prepare so you don't have to be afraid of the coming of Jesus. And here's what he goes on to say. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. That's the ultimate global warming, isn't it? But in keeping with his promise... We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. 
Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom God gave him. He's saying, listen, God has been more than patient with you and with me. He's revealed himself to us. He's, he's paid the price for our sin on the cross. He's been more than patient. It's up to us to decide, are we going to abuse that and reject that? Or are we going to make use of the opportunity God gives us to make the change that we need to make in our lives? We have to decide that for ourselves. So if we end up in hell, who has decided that? We have. We have made that choice because we've refused the offer that God has made to us. The reason this is so important, it's for you, yes, it's for me, but it's also for everybody we love and care about, for everybody you work with, for everybody, your friends, uh, the friends of your kids, everybody out there, they will be held accountable to this just like we are. And if you care at all about people, you have to care about where they're going to spend eternity whether or not they're living as objects of the wrath of God, you have to care about that for them, just like you should care about it for yourself. That's why the church exists on the earth, to make known the will of God and to call people to accept God's offer of grace and forgiveness. You're the church, I'm the church. We are the ones through whom God is going to call people to that repentance that he's wanting them to have in their lives. But if we keep just being tolerant of everything and saying, doesn't matter what you believe or how you live, it's all good, how are they ever going to know the need to repent, to turn from their sin and prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ so that they don't have to experience the wrath of God? Here's the thing God has done. This is the most amazing thing. God is a just God. And therefore, there must be punishment for sin. Here's the amazing thing. Even though we all deserve to be punished for our own sins, here's what God did. He exercised his wrath on his own son for us. When Jesus was beaten, when Jesus was spit on, when Jesus was nailed to that cross, that was the wrath of God that should be on us being put on him. That was for our sin. Don't tell me a loving God wouldn't punish anybody for sin because he even exercised that wrath against his own son, who had committed no sin of his own, but who took our sin upon himself. You want to know what the wrath of God is like? Look at Jesus on the cross. That's the wrath of God. So he took upon himself the wrath of God against sin for us. So if we reject that, then it's only fair that we have to pay for our own sins. God's done all he can do. He's gone as far as anyone could go to offer grace and forgiveness. If you reject that, then you leave yourself in the, in the place of being an object of the wrath of God yourself. In Romans 5, verse 6, he said this. You see, at just the right time, 
when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You see, God has provided the way for anyone and everyone to be saved from his wrath through the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Let's pray together. Father, it's hard sometimes to hear about wrath and punishment, but you would not be God, the righteous God that you are, without both forgiveness being offered and judgment being executed. That's what makes you a righteous father, a righteous judge, a righteous God. But Father, we're so grateful that even though all of us, every single one of us deserves to be objects of your wrath, we don't have to be, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything you've done for us through your son Jesus. If there's anybody here today who needs to make preparation to move from being objects of your wrath to being accepted by your grace. I pray that today would be the day they make that decision. They take that step. It begins with repentance as you've revealed in your word. It begins with acknowledging our sin, being sorry for what we've done and what Jesus had to pay for us on the cross. It begins with turning from that way of life and accepting your offer of grace and mercy being washed clean by your blood as we're baptized into Christ and rising to a new life where we don't choose anymore to deliberately go on sinning. And Father, knowing that your grace is enough, even if we slip and fall, we don't deliberately just keep on doing it. Help us, Father, to know that if we take the steps you've called us to take in your love and in your mercy, we look forward to that place you've prepared and we can eagerly anticipate the coming of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.